we are in a series that we've entitled Unfinished, looking at the book of Acts and seeing how uh, the early church lived out the Great Commission uh, in the days following Christ's resurrection and ascension. And we've traveled a long journey so far. In the last couple of weeks, we were introduced to a new character uh, to the storyline. We've been hearing about Peter and John and the early disciples, but we uh, were uh, brought to the attention of us this man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And we learned that Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor of the Christian faith, and he had gone about uh, trying to destroy the work of Christ through his people. And he was on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem to snuff out the church in Damascus, Syria, uh, so that the gospel could not go any farther. And while he was on his journey, we learned that he's blinded by a vision that comes. That vision is the appearing of Jesus Christ. And Jesus asked one simple question, why, Saul, are you persecuting me? And it's in that moment when he comes face to face with Jesus that he bows the knee in obedience and repentance and believes Jesus to be his Savior. For three days, he's blinded. And God sends a man by the name of Ananias to heal him and welcome him into the Christian community. And last week we learned that uh, amidst this amazing change that's taken place in Saul's life, Saul departs for a journey of three years to get closer with God, to heal up from some of his uh, guilt and, and the bondage that maybe was filling his heart uh, before he came to know Christ. And, and so here is this kind of this theatrical preview of Saul who will become Paul, the great apostle of Jesus Christ. But as soon as we get to know Paul and uh, start to know about his ministry, Luke takes the spotlight off of him and puts it back on Peter. And Peter's been the main character of the book of Acts. In fact, you could break up the book of Acts into two sections. You would look at the section that involves Peter, and that's the first part of the book of Acts. And then later on this fall, we'll see uh, Paul take on the spotlight in his missionary journeys and reaching uh, the Gentile world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we come back to Peter, and during this time, we're going to see Peter doing some ministry in some areas outside of Jerusalem. And the reason why is found out in verse 31 of chapter 9. Notice there with me, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So Peter has been investing a lot of his time and energy with the other apostles in Jerusalem. But now because the persecution has died down, he begins to venture out. And as he does, we're going to look at uh, his stops in Lydda and in Joppa. And then he's going to finish up in Caesarea. And, and we've got, listen, we've got a long passage of Scripture in front of us. And the only person I can blame for that is myself. About a year ago, when I, with the campus pastors, put together the, the Acts study, I don't know what we were thinking in dividing this passage of Scripture the way we did. And it didn't dawn on me until this week when I came to it again that it was going to be a long passage of Scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to draw three truths from our text today by doing kind of a running commentary of what's going on. And as we're walking through the text, I'll stop and give us some lessons that we can learn and some thoughts that we may have, and I believe it will be profitable for us. But I want to do so under the heading, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. But before we do, let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Lord, we're thankful for what we experienced in the first service with the baptism of Clay Scott, a young man, Lord, who uh, has made a decision not only to follow you, but to profess his allegiance and submission to you uh, through the waters of baptism. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have as a church to baptize. And Lord, over this past year, we've seen um, upwards to 50 individuals, both young and old, who have professed the name of Jesus Christ and the company of God's people through the waters of baptism. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. We're so thankful for what you are doing in our midst and the ministry that you are allowing us to be a part of. So, Lord, we just give you the honor for it all. We give you the glory for it. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to this passage, Lord, we don't just think of what's happening here. I think of the other three campuses, Lord, Indian Creek, Aurora, El Camino, as each of those campus pastors preach this text, Lord, I pray it would be of great blessing uh, to each of our campuses. And then, Lord, I think of Pastor Steve, who has been out at Plano Bible Church, Lord, in the transition of the what seems to be a, uh, 
uh, adoption of Plano Bible into the Village Bible Church family. And we just pray for Pastor Steve as he's teaching through uh, the book of Haggai, Lord, and just pray for them as a church. And, and, and Pastor Steve and Stephanie as they're out there, that, that would just be a time of great unity for them and, and great excitement. So, Lord, now as we turn our attention to this long passage, teach us what you will. And, Lord, we just give you all the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1965, a man by the name of James Brown, who was known in Motown, but wasn't really known in a lot of other places, predominantly because of his nationality and skin color, uh, found himself uh, thinking about playing a new set of music, introducing the world to a new style of music, a sound that had never really been heard before. You see, in 1965, there were many, especially in the Motown business, that felt that there was something missing in the music industry, that music had gotten stale. It had gotten uh, a bit rote. It had gotten itself to be something that was commonplace, and there wasn't a new sound or a new idea that was coming about. And This young man, James, would come and he would uh, enter the scene and he would enter the scene with a splash. He would enter the scene with a song uh, that was entitled, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. And for those that maybe don't know the music industry as well, or maybe you just need to be uh, awakened this morning, take a listen to this. So you get a little music. We're a Bible church, so we can only play one verse. Uh, so, so in 1965, James Brown comes onto the scene with that song. And you're like, okay, why, why in the world would we play uh, that song? What, what's, what's the reason for it, Tim? Here's the reason why. The idea behind the song, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, if you read the lyrics, the lyrics are talking about an old man who enters a nightclub. Everybody wonders why this old man is in this hip nightclub. And what he begins to do is they're wondering and they're watching as observers why this old man's there. His family is there watching and wondering why, why is dad, why is grandpa in a place that you wouldn't think. And grandpa does the unthinkable. As the music plays, he gets up and he cuts a rug like no one has ever seen before. And at the end of it, he declares to all that are watching, Papa, this old man has got a brand new bag. What that means is this old man had something that nobody thought he had. He was doing something that nobody thought he would do. He was up to a new thing. And it was a metaphor for the music world that James Brown was entering into, saying music was old, it was, it was crotchety, it had kind of gotten cobwebs around it. And it needed a new style. And if you notice, the heavy horns, uh, the downbeat measures that were being played on, it was a new way of doing music which made James Brown a household name. That is the number 71 greatest song of music of all time. It made an impact because it was something new. Now you say, Tim, where are you going? And here's what I want you to understand. In Acts 9 and into Acts 10, God is doing a new thing. Right when the church, right when Christians began to think that it was the same old, same old, with just a little twist to it, God comes up with a new idea. He comes up with a new thing that he is going to do. And that new thing was that Christianity was not going to be a Jewish only faith, but it was going to reach out and minister to Gentiles of all nations and all places. And we're going to see that in the conversion of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And as we look at that, we are overjoyed because we know that because Cornelius came to know Jesus, because he was brought into the family of God, that we too, Gentiles from all other nations, now 2,000 years later, get to be a part of that family of God as well. This plan that God had from the beginning, which the Apostle Paul called a great mystery, was now being unveiled to the world, and it was going to shake the world to its core. 
But before we get there, we need to see that Peter is doing ministry. So let's look at this under three headings this morning. As we look at our text, I want us to look at three things, and I'm going to move as quickly as I can through it. Number one, our text gets us thinking about ministry. It gets us thinking about ministry. So let's pick up where we left off last week, verse 32. And in verse 32, Peter is heading out. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Let's stop there. So Peter has headed out from Jerusalem. Now right away you say, okay, I I may know where Jerusalem's at, but where in the world is Lydda? Let's say Sugar Grove is Jerusalem. And Sugar Grove to its west, about 30 miles, is Lydda, which is where DeKalb would be. And so Peter has taken off from, if you will, Sugar Grove, Jerusalem, to Lydda, DeKalb, and he's ministering with people, disciples of Jesus Christ. And when he gets to Lydda, he finds that there is a man, Aeneas, who is bedridden, and it says he's paralyzed. Now we are given zero details of what caused this paralysis. We are given zero details of what caused him to be bedridden. Was it something from birth? Was it an injury that took place? What was it that caused him to be in this condition? We have no idea. But what we know is Peter comes, and, and we aren't told that he was told this ahead of time, but when he gets there, he comes upon an individual who is broken. It's no surprise, right? If Peter was to come here, he would find broken and hurting people, including yours truly, with all kinds of ailments and struggles and issues and medical conditions. And so here he is with this group of believers, and there's one of them who's really struggling, who's really hurting. And Peter goes into the room, and he tells them the following, Christ Jesus heals you, rise and make your bed. Some of you this morning went into a room of a teenager named Aeneas, and said, rise, because they look dead, rise and make your bed, right? Well, Aeneas gets up, he walks, he's healed. And we're not told anything more about him. We didn't know much going into it, we don't know much going out of it. He's healed, of course, no doubt he's got to be thrilled at the new prospect of life and what happens next. Luke leaves that scene. And he leaves the scene, and he now heads to Joppa. Joppa, if you're now to remember, Jerusalem is Sugar Grove. Lydda is um, DeKalb. Joppa is straight north of Lydda on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a port city, and it would be like Rockford, okay? So now uh, the scene moves from Lydda to uh, Joppa, And where we have a bunch of believers gathered together, and it says in Joppa, verse 36, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Now you would want a different name, right? If your name was Dorcas, if you were in the third grade, you can get beat up for a name like Dorcas. So we're going to go with Tabitha, okay? By the way, that that word uh, Dorcas means gazelle, so we don't know if she was fast or, or, or what caused them to name her this, but that was her name. But notice, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now let's just stop there for a moment. So... The scene moves, Peter's in Lydda, and Luke now moves to Joppa, where we have this group of believers, and amidst this group of believers is this woman named Tabitha. Now, we don't know her age, we don't know um, her family, we don't know if she was a wife or a mom, we don't have any information if she's rich or poor, we don't know anything about her personality, we get none of that information. 
But what Luke speaks about her is a mouthful. He says she is a generous woman who does acts of service. And I just want to stop right here before we even get into more of our outline and ask the question this morning, how generous and how much of a servant are you? You know, are we known for those things? Are we known to be people who are generous with our things that when someone is in need, we give it? Or if there's a a need that needs to be taken care of, we're there to be the person who stands in the gap for that area of service? Or are we known for our position? Are we known for where we live? Are we known for the car we drive? Are we known for the athletic accomplishments or the academic uh, qualifications that we have? Or are we known, because I believe the reason why Luke tells us this story is it's a pattern for what New Testament Christians should look like, and that is that they are generous people who out of great gratitude for all that God has done gives of their time, their talents, their treasures, and their testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you today that there need to be a whole lot more Tabithas in our world, and quite frankly, it needs to start with me. So we learn that this great woman who is serving the Lord in seemingly an unseen area, in this area of Joppa, dies. She has become ill. We don't know what causes her illness, but she dies. And uh, as was their custom, they uh, prepare her for burial, and, and before burying her, they put her in an upper room, probably for a time of funeral to take place. And the text tells us that since Lida was near Joppa, since Rockford is near DeKalb, word got out, and the disciples, knowing that Peter was in Lida, sent two men to Peter, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. Now let's just stop there for a moment and recognize that we have no idea what the disciples think that Peter's going to do. It doesn't say they called Peter so that Peter might come and heal her or raise her from the dead, maybe a better way of putting it. What seemingly is happening is they're calling upon Peter because as New Testament Christians, I think there's a lot of question of what do we do with dead people? How do we honor God as we bury people? And, and what better person to show us what burial looks like than Peter himself. So go get Peter. We don't want to defile God. We don't want to uh, defile our sister who has passed away. Go get Peter, and Peter will know what to do. And so Peter is summoned. People go and get him. He makes his way without delay to Joppa, and he enters into the room. We pick up our passage, and Peter Uh, rose up, went with them, and verse 39 says, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and the other garments Dorcas made while she was with them. This is very common. This is what we do at funerals, right? We, we weep over the individual who has passed and we talk about the things they talked about. We show the things that they did. Uh, you know, when was the last time you went to a funeral? What do you see? You see all the pictures and all of the things that made the person who's departed who they are. And so grieving and funerals are no different now 2,000 years later. But Peter put them all outside. And he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Amen? Wow! Uh, She was dead, Peter. What did you do? We wanted you to just come and do a funeral, and now you've done so much more through the power of Jesus Christ, and it says that it became known throughout all of Joppa, you think? I mean, I'm glad Luke puts that in there, but let's just be honest. If someone was raised from the dead, sure, that's going to get around town, right? And it does. And it says, and many people believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon who was a tanner. That is, he worked with animal hides. So let's stop there. Ten verses. Ten verses, two miracles. 
Two miracles that give us very little detail of what's going on. Why would Luke speak about one of the great healings that takes place, Aeneas? He does mention another paralytic being healed in the temple courts when Peter and John are there. When he says uh, earlier in Acts, silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Christ, rise up and walk. And, and Peter, or, sorry, Luke talks about that in great detail. Why not here with Aeneas? And why not in, in the individual that he's raised from the dead? We haven't seen that up to this point. Why wouldn't uh, Peter uh, have gotten more uh, accolades for it? Why would Luke not have shared more details about such a, an amazing and impactful ministry as the raising of a faithful woman from death to life? Why, won't, why, why is that? Because I think Luke wants us to think about ministry. I, want, I wonder if Luke is wondering, you know, as people read these scriptures years from now, might they, might they make these things bigger than they ought to be? I wonder if what Luke is telling us about ministry is, number one, stop, stop coveting the miraculous moments that were given that impact the temporal. You see, I think Luke knows deep down inside that as 21st century Christians, we look at the miracles and we say, give me that. I want that kind of ministry. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of church. And some of you might be sitting there today and maybe you've said to the Lord, if you would just let me see miracles, if you would just let me see healings, if you would just let me see someone rise from the dead, then I'd be more confident about my faith. I would be uh, surely more energetic about my faith. I would be far bolder about my faith if I had these things going on. But I want you to recognize something about these two miracles. Both were temporal. Aeneas would one day get sick again. And he wouldn't get healed that next time. And Tabitha one day would die again, and Peter wouldn't be there to raise her from the dead. She's still not just as a moment of, of point. Tabitha's still not living amongst us today. She died. And I want you to know that miracles, as tremendous as they are, are temporal in their nature. And yet we covet miracles because we want the temporary instead of that which is eternal. So, first of all, we talked about this some time. We still believe God does, can, and does perform miracles and does so for His glory and the pronouncement of the gospel uh, through His world. But we also recognize miracles by the very essence happen few and far between uh, in their instances. And so... We have the job of not healing or, or doing miracles, but preaching the good news. And right away we roll our eyes and say, well, that's not fun. That's not as flashy. And we covet that which the disciples were doing, even though what they were doing had a temporal effect. And what I think Luke is wanting to do, because in both circumstances, he tells us what the byproduct of the miracles are. Notice in verse uh, 30, 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. I hope you read that and understand what that's saying. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw them, and they, who are the they? All the residents of those towns turned to the Lord. A revival broke out. People came to know Jesus. Now, go up to verse 42. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And so, we've got two communities that have been changed, not because the miracle keeps the guy healthy forever and keeps the woman alive forever, but because of the message that was behind the miracle that Jesus Christ is the life-changing Messiah who the prophets preached and proclaimed about years and centuries ago. And by believing in Jesus, you might have life, you might have abundance in life, and you might have eternal life when you turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. Now here's the thing. Those people who came to know Jesus were not temporal changes. But notice, they allowed for something eternal to be impacted. 
And so what I think Luke is saying is stop focusing in on the miraculous and start, notice this, capturing the marvelous moments we are given that impact the eternal. Now, if we really stop and think about what we've been given the opportunity to do, we have been given the opportunity to share the same message, maybe not with all the bells and whistles of a miracle behind it, But we get to talk about the miracle of life change that's happened in our lives. We get to tell the world about that. And as the world receives our message, we have the ability to tell them because of faith and repentance and their proclamation of that faith that they are now brought into the family of God and that their inheritance now as children of God is not a temporal inheritance but an eternal one. We are promised an inheritance in glory that will last eons upon eons upon eons of time. For all of eternity, we will stand and we will rejoice and we will fellowship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So stop coveting the miracles and start capturing in your workplaces and in your communities and in your schools the opportunity to impact your community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that what will change is not temporary, but when they come to know Jesus, it impacts them for eternity. Amen? We've got to think about ministry. We've got to think about it differently. Now, number two. As we move into chapter 10, we do so under the heading that it gets us not just thinking about ministry, but it gets us listening with humility. It gets us listening with humility. Now we move to one of the most impactful conversions in the book of Acts. Now right away we just finished probably what is the most impactful conversion, the uh, conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But Saul of Tarsus is a ministry impact because it takes the guy who was persecuting the church and it makes him a disciple of Jesus Christ and and one of the greatest apostles to go and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Cornelius and his conversion is a missional conversion, if you will. He is brought to a place where he believes and trusts Jesus Christ. He'll be baptized later in Acts chapter 10. And his conversion is the opening of the floodgate for the gospel to go to uh, Gentiles and most specifically into the house of Caesar, the Roman leader. And so we will see that, that something great is about to happen. But notice the scene moves again. So remember, we were in Jerusalem. Uh, we went to Lydda. And then we went north to Joppa. Now, if you're thinking about it, if you're up in Joppa, which I said was Rockford, now we're going to Caesarea, which is Janesville, Wisconsin. Okay? Just helping you put this into perspective. And in Caesarea, Peter's in Joppa, but in Caesarea, something is taking place. Now, understand a couple things about the city of Caesarea. Number one, it would have been the provincial capital of the Roman Empire in the area of Judea and Samaria. Caesarea is named after Caesar. It's the city of Caesar, okay? It's kind of like how we call Washington, D.C. our capital city. It's it's named after a very important figure in our government. And so he's in Caesarea. Now, this man is Cornelius... And here's what Luke tells us about this man. He's a centurion, that is, he's a leader of a hundred soldiers. And the group that he oversees is called the Italian Cohort, verse 1 tells us. And, And listen, most groups of soldiers didn't have a name after them, right? They were just the group of soldiers. By being called the Italian Cohort would be like calling some of our uh, Navy uh, soldiers Navy SEALs. They have a title to their name. This was an elite group of men, and Cornelius must have been a great leader because he led this group called the Italian Cohort. But what Luke tells us in verse 2 is far more important. He's a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. We learn a little bit more about this man. Uh, It tells us uh, uh, later in verse 22, it says that Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of 
by the whole Jewish nation. Now, you read that, and if you don't have the history behind it all, you, you'll be quick to say, well, who cares that Jewish people liked them? I want you to recognize this morning that there's great importance there that Romans were occupying the Jewish people. They were the occupying army. And so i got to be honest with you, if you were being occupied by a group of, let's say, the Russian army, the last thing we're going to think well of is the Russian general who's overseeing the area of the Fox Valley area that's watching our comings and goings. But we are told that Cornelius is such an amazing man that the Jewish community actually likes their occupying officer. This tells us something of great importance. This man is different. He's a man that God seemingly has put his hand upon. He's an upright man. And this man had given generously. And notice he prays continually. And so about the ninth hour, verse 3, it says, The ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And when he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? The Lord said to Cornelius, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called one of his, or two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. angel says, I want you to go get Peter. Peter's in Joppa. Here's his GPS coordinates. You go get him. Cornelius sends a devout one, meaning he believes the same way Cornelius does. And a couple of attendants, you go get this guy. Bring him to me. I want to obey the word of the Lord that has come. Now, notice the storyline continues on, but the scene moves from Caesarea back down to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching Joppa, the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He's deep in thought. And he saw the heavens open up and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and the birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up all at once into heaven. Now let's stop there. So we have two guys in two different cities from two different backgrounds, two different uh, places in life, two guys who couldn't be any more different in their upbringing and in their jobs and in their experiences and, and place in life. And both of these men hear from God. And I think what Luke is wanting to show us is these two very different guys hear from God. And right away you again say, hey, if I can't have miracles, at least can I have a voice from God? That would surely be nice. Some of us wish that when we talked to God, God would be like a celestial Alexa from Amazon, okay? I recently got a, uh, whatever they call those dots or whatever they're called, and, and it's sitting next to my bed, and, and it's pretty amazing. Alexa, and it turns on, and, and you say, what's the weather going to be like today? And it tells you, Alexa, can you set an alarm for me tomorrow morning? You can tell it what music you want it to play. I mean, Alexa, wake me up by saying, I'm a good guy, and she'll wake up and say, you're a good guy. It's pretty amazing. You ask and you receive. And some of us are like, well, that's how I want God to be. Snappity snap, right? I ask God for something and he opens up the vision and he shows me the answer. But I've been asking things of God and God hasn't spoken to me. So these two very different guys are seeking the Lord in their own way. And God announces to them very clearly with GPS coordinates and everything, right? Of what they're called to do. And right away... We want to know how do we get that. Well, a couple things we need to know about listening to God or for God in humility. Number one, we need to recognize that God still is speaking to His people. 
God is still speaking to His people. So if you think some time or transition has taken place where God said, well, I spoke to my people in the first century, but after uh, the odometer hit 100, I quit talking to my people, that's not true. God is still speaking to His people today. And He uses all forms and, and ways of doing so. But all of those communications, because we're to test the spirits, all must be funneled through where he has spoken to us most clearly, and most clearly, and that is through his word. And so we need to seek his word. We also speak through God and wisely counsel those who, uh, who have maybe lived longer and those who maybe have walked with the Lord and longer and experienced things. And we can hear from the Lord there. We can also hear from the Lord in what is what we seemingly see is in a still small voice where the Lord speaks to the individual. To do so, to hear from God, and maybe today you're wanting to hear from God with regards to a direction in your life or, or maybe a concern that you have or a worry or an anxiety that you're dealing with and you're wondering, Lord, what do you have to say of this? And you're like, well, he hasn't responded. Let me give you three reasons as to maybe why he hasn't, and do so in the way of asking a question. Number one, are you active in prayer? Are you active in prayer? Both of these men hear from God while they are watching TV, right? They heard from God while listening to music on their way to work. They heard from God while they were sitting in a group of friends hanging out telling stories. God revealed this. No, both these men, as different as they were, heard from God when they were in a posture of prayer. Now right away you say, but Tim, when I'm praying, I'm talking, how can I listen? Well, prayer isn't us just talking to the Lord. It is us hearing from the Lord as well. And one of the things I think as pastors we have wronged you in when we preach about prayer is we preach this regimented and rote approach. We, we tell people that the way they pray in private is the same way we pray in public. I'm here to tell you my prayers in public are way more formalized and structured than they are in private. And so I find myself in all different kinds of places where I will just be worried or concerned about something or, or wondering, Lord, what will you have of me as a father, as a husband, as a, as a business person, as a, a pastor? Uh, Lord, there's a direction I need to be going in. And I'll say, Lord, what, what are you doing? Lord, what about this? Lord, what about that? Lord, you've laid before me a couple ways I can go and... I'm not sure which one to go because both you and I know I'm a moron. And so you're going to have to make things clearer for me. So Lord, speak to me. And then you stop. And I can't tell you how often that I have asked that very simple request that God has shared a verse with me. And sometimes when he wants me to wait, he reminds me, those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount upon wings like eagles. And other times where maybe an answer is going to be found in the wisdom of a multiplicity of counselors, God will remind me of people who maybe find themselves in a very similar situation that I find myself in. I'm like, oh, I didn't think about it. Go talk with so-and-so. Maybe hear from them. And sometimes the Lord has clearly articulated a scripture that says, what are you thinking? What are you thinking, Tim? You know you can't do that. You know that breaks one of my commands. And so I, I want you to recognize that we don't have to be, there is a moment, there is a time where there's a pattern of prayer where maybe we follow the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, or another help. I don't have any issue with that. But that's not where I want to focus in on today. What I want to focus in on today is that we're active in a posture of prayer where it is, it is a moment in time where we can talk with God and God can hear and, and can talk to us and we can hear from Him. So a couple things I want you to see about this posture of prayer that I think are important. Number one, it's private. It's private. It doesn't happen with lots of other people around. So if you think you're going to hear from God when all the people are all around you, uh, we see over and over again, very rarely does God speak in big groups. He usually talks one-on-one. -on -one. And so we've got to get away. We've got to get uh, quiet. We've got to find a place where we're alone to hear from God. Both these men are alone. 
Number two, it's persistent. It says that Cornelius continually sought after God. Earlier in Acts, we're told that Peter and the disciples were actively and continually devoting themselves to prayer. And what that means is if you think you're going to go home, you're like, all right, I found the key. Pastor Tim told me I've got a question. I've got a, I don't know what direction I need to go in. God is going to show me that. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to give him a half an hour of quiet. I'm going to ask him a couple of things and God's going to then give me the answer. That's not how God works. Some of you have been praying and waiting on the Lord's answer for days and weeks and months and years. And sometimes we've got to wait. And that's where humility comes in. Humility says, listen, I'm going to be a good soldier. I'm going to wait until my commanding officer gives me the answer that I've been requesting. We have to be active in prayer. Finally, we need to pray in such a way that we expect God to personally answer us. Two prayer requests were going on in these men's life. Number one, Peter was seeking the Lord to try to understand, Lord, how am I going to minister the Great Commission to the uttermost parts of the world if I'm just going to focus in on the Jewish people? And Cornelius is saying, Lord, how can I know you unless you send somebody to me who can preach the good news of Jesus Christ? He doesn't even know Jesus' name at that point. But he knows he needs help. And we need to pray in such a way that we don't pray, and this is true for us in small groups, it's true for us as individuals, that we don't pray such nebulous prayer requests that seemingly God answers it even as we're praying it, but we pray specifically that God would address the things that concern us so that when God answers it, we know God has moved in our lives. That's what it means to be active in prayer. Number two. It means that we need to be available. Available. For both of these men, they would hear from God because they were available. What, is I, what do I mean by available? I don't simply mean that, that they carved out time and said, Okay, Lord, I'll give you an appointment, 3.30, I'll be here, and we'll talk about things. I'll make myself available for a short season of time. What I'm talking about in availability is the heart behind it. Lord, I come to you... And the reason why I come to you in prayer is because you are God and I am not. Because you're the great and glorious God. Notice Cornelius is a God-fearing man. He respected God and he said, God, I'm not sure all of who you are, but I look around this world, you created it. I look around what you're doing and you, and it says your presence is all around us. God, you're way bigger than me. And so one way we make ourselves available to God to hear from Him is to stop and say, God, you are awesome. And because of that, I'm going to shut up. I'm not going to talk. Because I want to hear from you. I want to spend time with you. And so we want to invest time knowing that He is God, and so we'll quiet down because He's greater and more awesome than we could ever imagine or think. We've got to have the faith to believe that the who we're talking about is, or talking to, is God. Number two, we need to recognize that our availability doesn't just involve making ourselves available and have the faith that we're talking with God, but a recognition that we are broken and that we need help. Both of these men needed God to direct them. These men on their own would have never known each other had it not been for God. And so when you go to prayer, when I go to prayer, what we're acknowledging is, God, I need you. I am dependent upon you. And so I'm going to make myself available to you so that you can speak to me because I'm lost without you. And so we make ourselves available in that way. Number three, it involves a persistent nature to it, a fortitude that, that demands that we wait until we hear an answer. That we wait until we hear an answer. Finally, we need to be adjustable. So these guys go to prayer. These guys hear from God. God says, okay, uh, up in Caesarea, his re response to 
Cornelius is the following. Send some men, an entourage, down to Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. There you'll find Simon Peter. And I want you to bring Simon Peter back to your house and do whatever he says. That's the one answer. Down in Joppa, the answer to the prayers of Peter are, there are a group of men who are coming from Caesarea. They're not here to kill you. They're not here to uh, imprison you. They are here to take you to a God-fearing man in uh, Caesarea named Cornelius. When they come, you go with them. And you preach the good news of Jesus Christ to Cornelius. He has been seeking me, and I want to give him the rest of the story. Now, in both circumstances, an action was required. And in both circumstances, I don't believe either of Cornelius or Peter believed that morning that they were going to do what God was going to call them to. And so they had to readjust themselves to be able to do what God was asking. And it was going to be a stretch. Cornelius was going to go and send his entourage, some soldiers, and by doing so, he has declared to his soldiers that he believes himself to be a broken, flawed man in need of God to minister to him. Now that was probably an unpopular thing for Romans to do, and he quickly adjusted to be obedient in that way. Peter is going to have a group of the enemy come to his house. The Romans were the ones who crucified Jesus. The Romans were the ones that did a lot of the imprisoning of the Christians as the law of the land. And he's going to follow them. He's going to go up to Joppa and meet with their special forces general. And he's going to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And all the time, these Gentiles, these dogs, he's going to spend time with. He's going to welcome them into his home. He's going to eat with them. He's going to go into their house. And he's going to fellowship with them. And even worse, he's going to tell these Gentile dogs that they can be saved and be a part of the covenant love of God as even the Jewish people are. Talk about adjustments. And yet both of these men, without delay without rebuttal, obey. They obey. Can I just be very pastoral for a moment and tell you, in all love and sincerity, there have been prayer requests of mine that have gone unanswered, not because God hasn't given the answer, but because I didn't like the answer. I was unwilling to adjust my life to get the answer that God had given me. And some of you right now have been given an answer from the Lord. And you're like, I wonder when the Lord's going to answer. He answered three years ago, buddy. But you are too set in your ways. You are too unwilling to operate in a different way, to do things a little differently because of all different reasons that you can come up with. And here's the problem. You're bellyaching and I'm bellyaching that God's not answering our prayers. He already has. We're just unwilling to do what He's required of us to see the answer unfold. And that's a hard truth to swallow. Because what God is going to require, especially of Peter, runs really deep. Peter, listen, Peter hates Gentiles. He really does. Gentiles are subhuman in Peter's mind. Gentiles, they reek of everything that is wrong and defiled in our world, Peter thought. In the Babylonian Talmud, which is a set of rabbinical writings, a family each and every day would wake up and at the breakfast table would praise God that God did not make them a Gentile or Samaritan, but made them a Jew. Think about that. Let's put that in in modern language today. Uh, An American family gets up and we praise God and we say, and listen, this gets a lot closer to home in our newscast than we would ever think, right? God, I'm thankful I don't live in that kind of place. God, thank you that I'm not this. I'm an American. I'm not this or that. Lord, thank you for making me white, not black, or, or brown, or, or Asian, or any one of the other multicolors that you've created. Lord, I'm glad I'm white. Maybe it's, Lord, I'm glad I'm rich. I don't have to live in the ghetto. I don't have to, uh, to work minimum wage jobs. And, and I want you to know, this is where Peter finds himself. And a lot of it has to do with his upbringing, and for many of us, it has to do with our upbringing. 
and the traditions that we uh, were accustomed to. And he has to adjust. And he has to say, the way I think about people and the way I listen to God, God doesn't care about the hang-ups in my life. God demands obedience. And some of us are not hearing from God because we are unwilling to move, to be moldable and malleable for the glory of God. And, and can I just tell you something? Churches are there as well. Some churches haven't heard from God in a long time because God has said, you know what? The answer to your growth problem is you need to reach that group of people. No, we don't reach those kinds of people. Those aren't our neighbors. Those aren't our friends. That's not my community. Those are those people. We'll leave those people alone. Lord, why don't you grow our church? Well, because you've nailed down uh, 50% of the demographic you can't touch because there are those kinds of people. Do you get what I'm getting at here? If we're not adjustable, we will not hear what God has to say. Peter is adjustable, and as he's adjustable to the will and plan of God, notice the final thing, and that is it moves him and it moves us beyond bigotry. Because he goes, and he spends time with Gentiles, and he serves Gentiles in his home, it says. And then he goes to Caesarea and he enters into a home of a Gentile, that which was unlawful according to Jewish law to enter into. And he preaches and proclaims to a Jewish people and he's going to, I'm sorry, a Gentile people and he's going to baptize them later on, not only Cornelius but the entire household. And how does he get beyond it? Well, can I be honest with you? He never really gets beyond it because in the book of Galatians we find out that there's a gathering with Jewish and Gentile people and, and, and uh, Peter's hanging out with the Gentiles because those are the only ones in the room and oh, I love the Gentiles. Gentiles are great. This is awesome everything. And then some of the Jewish guys come into the cafeteria and they walk in and they see Peter with the Gentiles and, and, and Peter's like, oh, hey, you know what, Gentile guys? I got to go. Can't be seen with you guys. And the Apostle Paul rebukes Peter for that sin. And so I want you to know this sin is an ongoing thing that Peter has to address and deal with. But he rises up in this moment, and we're thankful for it, that he rises up. And in it there's some truths that I want to walk away from. What a great week to be talking about this. The celebration of Martin Luther King's um, uh, birthday. And celebration of all that he's done in this last week. It's also the 50th anniversary of his a tragic death, um, and by no means a perfect man, but he helped us to understand some of our own racial issues and some of our own issues. And, and here's one of the problems. He said the most segregated time in the week is Sunday morning in our churches. Now we need to be careful, and, and I want to just, I don't have a lot of time, but I want to just take a moment, and I wish I had more time to preach on this, but I don't today, so we'll come to it again. We don't just pursue diversity for diversity's sake, all right? And so we have to look where God has planted us, and we have to ask the question, what is the community around us? And we have the great luxury of demographic studies and all of that. So, so listen, um, I am of Middle Eastern descent predominantly. My dad's from Iraq, and, and I could get mad and say, y'all are racial, okay? Because there's not a lot of Iraqis around here, Right? We don't have enough Assyrians around, you know, and, and we're bigots because we're not... Well, listen, if you do a demographic study, you're going to find out there's only a couple of us, uh, Abraham DeLal and the Badal family, okay? There's not a lot of Middle Eastern background people in Sugar Grove and the surrounding area, right? And so we need to recognize that, that our, where we call home is going to dictate how much diversity there is. But here's the thing. We should be open and ready and excited when people of all different races and backgrounds find their way into our communities. And I will tell you, and we'll get to this in a moment very quickly, but it's happening more than we know. Our schools are becoming more diverse. Our communities are becoming more diverse than ever before. And instead of putting up walls, we need to be putting down welcome mats, welcoming these people into our lives, into our families, and into our church communities. Not as 
second-class citizens, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do we learn about bigotry for ourselves? Quickly go through this, and then I'll let you go. Number one, sadly, bigotry is that the very essence opposed to racial integration, bringing the races together. And racial integration is secretly and publicly condemned by far too many Christians and churches. Some of us right now are like, why, Tim, are you talking about this? You know what? Leave those people alone. When we talk about these people and those people, be very careful. And we need to be careful because some of us in our hearts, we carry, maybe it's because our parents drilled it in us, we carry this idea that we are superior to other people because of our skin color or because of where we live or the country we call home. We have to be very, very careful with this. Listen, it wasn't too long ago that the last vestiges of, of uh, racial segregation were in higher places of learning in Christian colleges. It was in the 80s where one of the uh, well, most well-known Christian colleges in America allowed for um, the segregation of black and white students. They couldn't date, they couldn't marry, and they called themselves Christian. Listen, racism, whether in the heart or outside, is a pox on the church and it runs completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, you cannot be a good Christian and a racist at the same time. You can't. And so rid yourselves of it. Get rid of it. Ask for help. Be honest about it. Listen, I struggle with this. How, how do I get beyond it? Number two, racial integration. Why is it against all of Christianity? Because race, racial uh, integration is central to the biblical plot line. Let me give you the Bible in 20 seconds. In the beginning was Adam and Eve and their family. And from that family became more families and more families and more families and more families and more families. And we get to the book of Revelation. Okay, that was fast, wasn't it? We get to the book of Revelation. And we are told about one family. The family of God. And how is the family of God described? From every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not the whites, not the Americans, but every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God has been telling this story and this plot line, and He's been previewing it and previewing it. And listen, if you are a racist, you're really not going to enjoy heaven very much. You get that? You're not going to enjoy it. Because there are going to be people who are way closer to Jesus with different skin colors and they're going to worship differently and they're going to talk differently and they're going to have different traditions and all that and God is going to say, listen, well done, good and faithful servants. And it's going to blow our minds. Number three, it's crucial to the time we live in. Never, ever before has the church, or the, the, sorry, the globe been so interconnected than ever before. The largest, listen, the largest migration of human beings is taking place and has been taking place for the last 10 years more than any other time in human history. Because of technology, we can be talking with the other side of the globe in a half a second. Because of technology, we can be on the other side of the globe in body within a matter of a day. We are connected like never before to all the nations. And because of that, we are able to go to the nations in a way we never have before. And the nations are coming to us. And listen, we don't talk about this in, in theoretical terms. We look at our Aurora campus right now, which has been flooded with refugees in a circled area, okay, around them within a couple mile radius. And we've got dozens of nationalities right now that are coming to our Aurora campus. And we praise God for that because God is doing a work of bringing the nations to us. Now here's the thing. God's bringing the nations to Sugar Grove. God's bringing the nations to Hinkley and Yorkville. We just got to open our eyes a little more. We've got to open our eyes and we've got to receive them. And in some ways we've done a really good job with that. In other ways we could do a much better job. It is crucial for the times we live in. But how do we fix it? Racial integration is made complete only through the gospel. Only through the gospel. Verse 28, Peter says this, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation, but God 
Not someone else, but God has shown me I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent, I came without obligation. Notice verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. The only way we will rid ourselves and our churches of bigotry and racism is when we recognize that in the gospel we are blind, dead, and held captive. We are lost without a Savior. We are fragile and flawed people, broken at every point. And it is God who came into a nation of all colors and all races and all nations and sent His Son Jesus to die for the broken people of the world to give us life, to love us back into His family family. And when we are a part of the family, we become brothers and sisters of Christ, not because we share the same color, not because we share the same area code or the same nationality, but because we share the same blood that was shed on the cross by Jesus Christ for us. Amen. And so let's cut this racist stuff out. Let's get rid of our bigotry when we adopt and hold fast to the gospel. We've been taught today to think about ministry. We've been taught to, to listen in humility. And we've been taught today to move beyond bigotry. 